This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Graham Richardson. I hope you're doing well. Bright and sunny in my part of the country, going up to maybe 20 degrees this weekend. Nuts in Ontario. Uh, Talk about late fall. Uh, It's also getting hot in the hearing room on the use of the Emergencies Act. Uh, It's a public inquiry that the act requires whenever it's invoked. The act was, uh, has never been used before until the truckers convoy. Um, we are now hearing from the trucker side of things or the protesters side of things. Yesterday was towards the end of the day was, uh, quite something to say the least. Pat King testifying that the commission really needed to look into the United Nations, the world economic forum, the president of Iran and white replacement theory. The fact that immigration is replacing all the whites, and that is just a fact. Of course, those are all conspiracy theories that have been widely debunked, um, and many people, including the man we're going to speak to later on in the show, Paul Champ, the re- the lawyer representing residents of Ottawa, believes this platform um, for the protesters has uh, is too much. Uh, is too much. You know, personally, I think that. It's, um, I, I like public inquiries as a journalist, as a, uh, someone who wants to know what happened, the inside workings. I think already this inquiry has provided value. Um, we got an inside look at the dysfunction and chaos on the police side. The fact that as the convoy continued to control the streets of Canada's capital city in the downtown core. They fought amongst themselves. They fought amongst themselves. And the, now the other side we're getting in particular, um, from the, from the convoy protesters is this disparate group of people who came together in a surge. And I, you know what, like, I, I'm not, I, I'm quite in awe of what they were able to do in a short period of time. I don't necessarily agree with their, um, their tactics, their tone in every case, but think about this in the, in the, in a period of two weeks, they organized a massive fundraising campaign. They galvanized people on social media. And thousands of people within, within a matter of a couple of weeks, they were, they were talking about this in early January and by, or mid January and by late January, they were on the streets in Ottawa, having come from all over the country, many of them from Western Canada, Quebec, Atlantic Canada, and parts of Ontario. I said yesterday on Twitter, I think actually today on Twitter, you know, like getting Canadians to go out and protest anything is a challenge. And somebody said, well, you're carrying water for the truckers. Come on. My point is, is that I, I really believe that the prime minister, when he said this was a fringe, these, the, they had abhorrent views. I mean, I think that's a simplistic, uh, incorrect assessment of who was actually on the ground in Ottawa in January and February. I'm not dismissing the notion that many of them had fringe views and racist views. Some of them did, but by and large as a group, 
I don't think you can just dismiss a chunk of the population like that, given how committed they were and how many of them there were. And that's what I meant by that. And we're getting a look as well into just this morning, a fascinating presentation by commission to the public. That's the other thing. It's all public. If you don't like what I'm saying about it, or if you don't believe what you're reading, if you're still, if you're reading mainstream media or listening or watching mainstream media and you don't believe it, you think there's this grand conspiracy to, you know, warp the story or whatever the heck it is. Just watch it yourself. Go into the documents, look at the testimony, you know, um, journalism is subjective. We, in that we take, uh, we take what we think at the moment is the most important, most compelling part of the story. And we present it as a story. It is a snapshot. Maybe your snapshot is different. That's fine. It doesn't mean we're all coordinating and trying to do something collectively. We can barely organize ourselves to get on the air every day or go out and have a beer at night. So there's no, there's none of that. But what I like about this is that it is cracking open both sides and it's giving the public a brighter picture, a better picture, a more um, a glare on what was going on behind the scenes. All of this is a caveat on all of this because the judge will have the final ruling on what he includes and what he throws out, what it means, what's important and what is not, as it should be. I'm dropping in and out on my various, you know, during the day, uh, uh, as I continue to do my other functions, like I'm not strictly covering this. So I'm missing chunks of testimony because I'm on the air right now. The judge is hearing and seeing everything. He is listening to everything and he will go over everything, every document. No one knows more about this public inquiry than Judge Rulo. The money, follow the money. Much has been made about who was funding this. So today we got a figure. And they did a forensic audit on all the available accounts and they had the power to do this. If a, if a bank said, well, show me, you know, the authority to do this, they have the authority to do this. So this is a definitive number that was released this morning, $24 million, I'm going to say $24 million through various funds, through various fundraising activities. That's what went towards this protest. Another caveat, a huge chunk of that money, I believe around 10 million, 11 million went through GoFundMe and ultimately was returned. So the 24 million figure, you need to subtract some of it because a lot of it went back to donors, but it gives you a picture of how much they were able to raise in a short period of time. Here's a breakdown. Now there's two competing narratives here. This is all foreign money. This is nefarious Republican meddling in our American Republican, Republican meddling in our affairs, loving the fact that they're causing chaos for Justin Trudeau. Some of that is true. The other side, this is all down to earth Canadian truckers and people of working class who felt left behind and alienated by Justin Trudeau and his government and the vaccine mandates he imposed, they believe draconian impositions on 
the Canadian public that the Americans were not doing. Some of that is true too. And we can say that definitively now. Stay with me on this. They released a chart. So the GoFundMe Freedom Convoy funds the money. 89% Canadian, 9% American, 2% other. That's the early GoFundMe that was eventually reversed, right? Transferred back to the donors. After the mayor got involved saying the and directly talked to GoFundMe saying this is being used for disruptive purposes, don't be involved, they shut off the money and refunded it. 89% Canadian, 9% US, 2% other. Freedom Convoy e-transfer, 100% Canadian. You can't do an e-transfer from the United States. Freedom Convoy go, Give, Send, Go. That's the American replacement for GoFundMe after GoFundMe shut down. 47% Canadian, 47% US, 6% other parts of the world. Adopt a trucker, 55% Canadian, 41% American. Adopt a trucker e-transfer, 100% Canadian. So basically, all of those numbers mean that the later part, latter part of the campaign, after GoFundMe was shut down, about a 50-50 split with American money. So incorrect to say American money didn't play an influence, and incorrect to say this was entirely Canadian. The American money was an influence, it just wasn't 100%. When we come back, we will talk about Ontario, the notwithstanding clause, and the looming strike as the clock ticks. Welcome back to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Lots of questions on uh, and texts on what I just read out in terms of the funding for the um, for the trucker convoy. One of the questions, I'm curious to know how much of the total money from all donation sources came from the U.S., 20% of the total, 30% of the total. Let me just repeat it again. I know it's it's a bit complicated, I know. The free, the GoFundMe, the early funding, okay, before it was cut off, 90% Canadian, okay? That's shut down, replaced by Give, Send, Go. Give, Send, Go, American, about 50% of that money came from the United States. And in terms of the overall $24 million, how much was GoFundMe and how much was Give, Send, Go? I believe GoFundMe was roughly 10 million, 11 million. The rest, so 14 or so, was the secondary give, send, go. So roughly, and don't hold me to this, 14 million, multiple millions of dollars towards the end of the campaign, half of it American, half of it Canadian. The other big story we're watching, of course, is the pending strike, which will be an illegal strike, by the way, it's not a protest. If you walk off the job um, and you've been legislated back to work, that's an illegal strike. I'm just not going to call it a protest. I know they started to do that earlier in the week, but it's not. It's a strike. Um, it, it doesn't really look like they're going towards a deal or talking or whatever. Just a few moments ago, here is the education minister, Stephen Lecce, 
in a Twitter video, he's just posted this. He demanded a nearly 50% increase in compensation or threatened a strike if they didn't get it. Um, and I think the government has demonstrated that we will do whatever it takes uh, to keep these kids in class in a normal, stable environment without any disruption that I believe they deserve after two extraordinary years of a pandemic and recent strikes that preceded the pandemic. And so we're here because QP, at the end of the day, has completely brought forth unreasonable demands. They refuse to withdraw their strike, and we have literally no choice. That's where we are as of this hour. That's the education minister. It doesn't sound like we are lurching anywhere towards an agreement, but you never know. You never know. These things are um, labor negotiations, and they can go right down to the wire, and sometimes they do. And uh, this one is, uh, we've got OPSU, another union, uh, walking out in support. Uh, Alison Braley Rutai is the Associate Professor of Labor Studies at Brock University. Alison joins us on the line. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Alison, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hey, it's Graham uh, Richardson. Thanks for joining us. Have, no problem. What's unusual about this particular negotiation from your perspective and this particular set of um, labor issues between government and this union? Well, I think the big story about what's sort of unique about this is, of course, um, the fact that the government is uh, trying to pass a bill that uh, invokes Section 33. We've all heard about the notwithstanding clause, mm -hmm. uh, and there's been a lot of commentary about that. Um, that's uh, sort of the most unique, if you will, uh, aspect of this, although there are certainly many things about it that are, I would say, troubling, uh, including the fact that the bill imposes a contract upon these workers rather than sending the outstanding issues to a neutral third party, which, of course, is, you know, something that was available for the government to put into this bill. And frankly, I think the minister's comments that I heard a few moments ago uh, are, are disingenuous. Now, of course, I suppose... Yeah, well, uh, you know, again, you know, when you're doing contract negotiations, you know, there's a lot of political posturing, and, and that will, of course, happen on, on both sides. But, you know, it really is only this morning that I, I started to think that uh, the, the, the project here was more about these, uh, it was less about these particular negotiations than, than a wider attempt at, at union busting. Hmm. And I don't say that lightly. Um, I don't want to, you know, this is not a knee-jerk reaction because it's a conservative government, and they tend not to be <laughs> very friendly towards workers, particularly organized workers. Well, um, and but, I do want to stop yeah. you there. They will point out, and they are as we speak, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Mr. Ford had support of several unions uh, in his re-election campaign, they have made a concerted effort to reach out to organized labor, but I hear what you're saying and continue. Well, I think a couple of things. First of all, there is a, a you know, without getting into the weeds, sure. one might see the divide between the kinds of unions uh, that, uh, you know, Doug Ford reached out to uh, versus the kind that he is uh, less amenable to. So, I mean, we do. He wasn't reaching out to teachers unions. No, yeah, we see fair enough. these are construction workers, you know, they fair tend to be a more conservative bent. But I think it's really important to note that some of them have come out to call him out on this bill as well. So yes, I think they that's have. particularly telling. And is I think it... what else is telling? Yeah. Go ahead, sorry. Well, what else is telling about this is the trajectory when we look at this in the wider term. And that's why I say, uh, you know, I, I, I'm troubled by what I think is really, uh, you know, a disingenuous 
comment on the part of the minister. Uh, I mean, several weeks ago, the government already started to signal that they were going to use back-to-work legislation. And then they bring out this bill, which, of course, has these components attached that aren't necessary to actually stop uh, you know, a, a strike, right? They don't need to impose a contract in order to stop a strike legally. They don't need to uh, invoke Section 33, except for, of course, that helps insulate them against the inevitable charter challenge. Mm. If the goal was really just about avoiding the disruption, then simple back-to-work legislation and sending everything to a neutral third party would allow that. The fact that when, you know, QP comes back and says, we have a counteroffer for you, and Leche says, I'm not even going to consider it until you take the strike uh, intent off the table. Mm. I mean, either he doesn't understand how negotiations work, or in fact, he really does. If the goal is to avoid disruption, and we know disruption is coming on Friday, at least, if this bill passes, if the goal is to avoid disruption, why wouldn't you take that counteroffer seriously and deal with it on its merits? So, so when you put okay, all that okay, together, yeah. I just don't think there's really an, int- an intent here to actually come to terms uh, with these workers where they might actually be able to agree. Okay. So the other point here is that normally my experience has been back-to-work legislation comes after a walkout, not before. How unusual is it to bring it in before? Well, actually, it's increasingly usual. Uh, I'm a a little sorry to say um, to to do it uh, preemptively, uh, what some people have referred to as instant back to work. Um, I I believe, and I do research in this area, uh, it's not that every piece of back to work legislation is automatically unconstitutional, even though, of course, there is now, as of 2015, a constitutional right to strike. I, I do believe that. Some pieces of back-to-work legislation can be carefully tailored in order to um, avoid being unconstitutional. And I think one of the hallmarks of that is a little bit of restraint with regard to the timing. You know, instant back-to-work already automatically raises these red flags. Now, of course, they are sometimes, you know, it is sometimes invoked. I mean, in 2012, the Ontario Liberals, you know, proposed and then got passed uh, a bill that did very much uh, what this bill does, of course, it didn't invoke Section 33. But it um, cost them $100 million. Uh, it, 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 it cost them some money, there's no doubt. But I think that's actually really quite important here. I mean, the, the, the invocation of Section 33 has been referred to as an overreach, draconian, the nuclear option. Uh, I myself think it is a, is it a, it is a terrible overreach uh, that was not envisioned to be used in the particular circumstance that is being used here. All right. Part of the idea of the charter is that you might have to be accountable down the road for the things you do. But if your desire is to keep them in class, you didn't need to insulate yourself against that future um, accountability. You could also just come to the table and deal with their counter deal. But, you know, that's another another matter altogether. Alison braley Ratai, Associate Professor of Labor Studies at Brock. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Lots of people texting in about this, suggesting... 11% is unreasonable too. Referencing the union ask, apparently they've come down to 6%. That was the offer that Lecce did not want to look at unless strike was removed on Friday, which is now less than 12 hours away. So hopefully kids will stay in school. They'll get a deal. Hopefully they get a deal. The other point on this, I know the government is has an eye on other unions as well in terms of negotiation. What they negotiate here ripples through all negotiations.
News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. Uh, We're going to talk about what's happening in our hospitals, particularly children's hospitals, in just a moment. Before we get to that, um, more on the Freedom Convoy and the money. I just, I want to clarify and I want to give you more information. I talked about the percentages, where the money was coming from, how much money. The Canadian press has done um, an excellent job of, of, of tracking the flow and where it went and how much actually was paid out. So the 25 million figure is how much was raised overall through e-transfers, cryptocurrency, GoFundMe, Give, Send, Go. But only a million of it was actually spent by the convoy's various organized. So a million. 18 million refunded to donors. The rest of it locked up in escrow. So basically lawsuits and that sort of thing, uh, particularly on Paul Champ's lawsuit. He's the lawyer who's going to join us after the one o'clock news. Um, Give, send, go. That's that American 13 million combined. And a lot of those donors were from the U.S. So I, I just think on this constant debate of where the money was coming from, was it Canadians? Was it Americans? I think the answer is both. I think the answer is both. And that won't satisfy other either side. But that seems to be where the money, like it's significant support from the United States, significant support from Canada, especially early on. That's what the numbers tell us. If you uh, have a child and you've been trying to get them seen at a hospital, you're noticing that things have really, really become stressed in our children's hospitals, particularly uh, Ottawa's CHEO and SickKids in Toronto. Ontario hospitals are being asked to treat children 14 and older to uh, who need to access the intensive care unit to ease the pressure on pediatric, pediatric hospitals. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, infectious disease physician with Trillium Health in Mississauga. He joins us now. Why are we seeing this now, doctor, from your perspective? Yes, when you look at what we're seeing, uh, it's an expected uh, thing when you understand viral dynamics in a community. So, you know, the last two and a half years, uh, kids have been uh, away from each other. They haven't been in school in a prolonged period of time. They're back now. But the issue is you've also seen in the background certain viruses that we normally see in circulation, rhinovirus, RSV, metanemovirus. These viruses have all been sort of suppressed around the world with an ongoing pandemic. These are now coming back, and all of these things together, the lack of immunity from lack of um, exposure, this is all now coming into one big perfect storm. Uh, and, you know, uh, another interesting thing is that when a kid is seeing a virus for the first time at an older age, this is a phenomenon that we can see. Sometimes the course can be more severe, including sometimes requiring hospitalization. All of this together is leading to what we're mm. seeing. So without getting into what has become, unfortunately, a bit of a political football on whether lockdowns were good or bad or whatever, the, the basic fact that we made the conscious decision as a society to protect during pandemic, to protect people from each other uh, because of COVID, that also protected them from other things. And inevitably, they would face those other things when lockdowns lifted. And in some cases, have severe outcomes more so than we're used to seeing. Fair? Yeah, it's certainly unintended consequences, I think, is what you're referring to. And that's yeah. certainly what we're seeing now. Not that, and, and the other argument would be not that you had the option to not do that if you look at some of the European countries that did not do the lockdown, they had regrets early on in the pandemic, and 
there was a lot more death. And so what can the health system do about it now? What can parents do about it now? I, I think in a certain way, uh, this is going to be a storm that we have to weather. I think there are certain things that we can do to, um, you know, uh, lessen the impact. You know, things like when you're, uh, if you're sick, uh, stay at home, uh, get the flu vaccine, for example. Uh, if you haven't been vaccinated, uh, you know, get your routine vaccine. These are all things that we have to do. But I think that one thing that is a change in perspective, there's been a lot of focus on the avoidance of infection. And, you know, of course, that made sense early on uh, in the pandemic, but I think that's kind of now shifted into other areas where I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. Uh, you know, multiple uh, exposures to viruses is what builds a, a child's immune system so it can be strong uh, later on when you're exposed again. And I think these things are, have been lacking. And I think we just have to realize that the immune system has been around for thousands of years and has evolved to having pathogens stimulated. And I think we've got to kind of get back to basics on that. And how, what about the hospital situation overall? Um, you, you see it because we keep hearing um, very, very frustrating stories from the public about treatment, whether it's pediatric or adult. Um, how unusual is it to see this kind of stress on the hospital system? Right now, I would say the timing is somewhat unusual. Usually we start to see this more around December. And I think what's happened here is this current situation, plus, of course, COVID over the last uh, two and a half years, it's just highlighted a problem that was already there and stressed a problem that was already there. Certainly, we need short, medium, and long-term solutions for our healthcare system. But right now, when you have a system that's been running at 100% capacity for the last, even before the pandemic, it's not surprising that we're seeing that. And look, I think that uh, we need some long-term solutions going forward. It's not something that I have an easy answer for, but uh, uh, certainly we're, we're seeing the stress of that. Mm-hmm. And we hear a lot from the public that they're losing faith, that they've got the coverage they assume they've always had. What, what do you say about that? This is, you know, something I can't deny because, you know, if you're going to a hospital that's either been closed or the wait is way longer or you don't end up going because you're worried about that, that certainly is the case. And I think that, again, I think right now there's nothing short-term that's going to be able to help that. We're just going to have to weather the storm. But I will say, tell people there is a light at the end of the tunnel, at least right now with these off-season types of waves and uh, sickness. Eventually, this will even out. We will get that reestablishment of the immune wall in the population against these respiratory viruses in kids and in young adults as well. Uh, so it's not going to be like this forever, but unfortunately, yeah, it is going to be a bit of a bumpy ride for the next uh, uh, six to eight months. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, uh, always great to have you on. Thanks so much for this. Absolutely. Take care. All right. Uh, when we come back, I want to read some of your texts on the uh, funding of the convoy. We're getting a lot of texts on that. Um, uh, and uh, the, the Commission of Inquiry looked into, uh, did a forensic, essentially a forensic audit on where the money uh, was coming from, like what countries and uh, where, uh, how it was dispensed. And again, only, only a million of it was actually dispersed. Uh, but the number of donations uh, for the first time today, we heard the 24 to 25 million figure. Uh, I don't believe we've heard that before. A lot of that was refunded. Um, and we're going to read some of your reaction to that leading into our next guest just after the one o'clock hour. That is Paul Champ. Uh, he is a representative of the 
people in the city of Ottawa, and he has uh, launched a class action lawsuit against anybody who participated um, in the protest, and he is responsible for tying up some of that money in escrow and freezing it until the lawsuit is resolved. Uh, and that has come up on the stand as well. It's just that we are getting, as we speak, in the uh, in the hours uh, during the day today, we are getting an inside look, both police side, both the uh, and the protester side, of what was going on, and both sides were chaos. Nothing was organized. Like it, it looked organized from a police perspective. Towards the end, it looked like a very coordinated campaign to move people out. Uh, it was in the end, but before that, it was a complete mess behind the scenes. Similarly, what looked like a very organized protest by all of the uh, truck drivers and the fuel moving in and the food and the support and the money flowing and the fireworks and all of that, we're also hearing a lot of conflict and a lot of confusion about who was in charge, what they were trying to do. One of the protesters made a, made a point, I was only here, this is Chris Barber, to put pressure on the federal government and to talk about vaccine mandates at the border for truckers. It became much more than that. It was pointed out to him that he really couldn't control what was said in the name of the convoy. So your texts coming up, 71010. Keep them coming. I'm Graham Richardson. This is News Talk Today. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Uh, 10 to the hour. Thanks for joining us. We're getting a lot of uh, reaction, obviously, to the money uh, and the public inquiry that's released uh, an audit, essentially a report on an audit about where the money came from, where it went. Um, and keep your text coming. 71010. Just going to read a few of them. Now, 90% of truckers were vaccinated. This comes from Montreal. Truckers are embarrassed. They called this circus a convoy. If we were going to protest anything, it would have been how badly we were treated by private businesses during the pandemic. Thanks for that, Montreal. By the way, Montreal, some of the truckers, many of them who, pro, who uh, were involved with the protest and have testified at the inquiry, talked about that. It's just outrageous. You're running essential goods uh, during lockdown. So grocery stores are filled and people have food to eat and nobody lets you use the bathroom. Like right hand, left hand, you know, like I know everybody was scared back then, but that's not the first time we've heard about that. And you raise a good point. Um, what's the problem with American money being donated to the truckers? Why shouldn't they be able to raise money from anyone they want? And why is it automatically nefarious because it comes from the U S fair point that text from Toronto, you can do whatever you want. The narrative or the argument, uh, particularly from supporters of the government in the use of the Emergencies Act, pointed to this element and suggested that this is something that Canadians have not seen before. And because a lot of the money came from Americans or from American sources, um, it uh raise the concern level about this particular protest. And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, 
I'm not trying to be slippery here. Like they would point to that. That's the reason why it's important. I'm not saying they're right. It's it's important because I would I would assume that part of the argument from the cabinet will be that some of this was funded by foreign sources. That's unusual. That's a threat to Canada, particularly because a significant group of the leadership wanted to replace the government of Canada. They've all got up in the stand now and said, oh, what's this memorandum of understanding? We had no idea what that was. They were in a news conference when it was read out, basically saying they were going to form government with the leader of the opposition, the, the, the speaker of the Senate and the governor general and veto uh, vaccine mandate rules and laws or and man, uh, orders. That's not the way it works. Get elected. We all know that. So, so long answer to your short text. That's why, that's why it's significant. I'm not condemning Americans for donating to truckers. I hear people texting and saying, look, I donate to international things all the time, whether it's animal welfare or whatever. I understand that. And, and you are, it's the internet. You're free to do whatever the heck you want, you know, uh, in terms of donations. But the reason, the reason it's important is that the money was a big factor. The funding of it was a big factor because they had lots of supplies coming in. And the impression was that, and is that they were funded from Canadians. Yes, but also from Americans and other parts of the world. Now we know the numbers. That's why, that's why it's important. Um, I'm not working class and I donated. So did a number of non-working class Canadians. I know. Fair enough. Um, no foreign money and it showed the support. Well, okay, there, there was foreign money technically. I mean, America is foreign, right? Americans in a different country. 47%. This text, I'm just going to, I'm just going to read this, um, dude, what I see on YouTube is the actual question and answers, but I never see this on CTV or CBC because MSM wants to control the narrative. This is why MSM has lost all credibility to report honestly. Okay. Hey dude, CTV, CBC, Global, Globe and Mail, The Star, CPAC, everyone is streaming the Q&A to their website live. You can go to ctvnews.ca and watch it right now. What you're watching on YouTube is the same feed. We offer a variety of services to the Canadian public, newscasts, talk radio, and, and part of our process is disseminating what's most important for people who want to watch that format. And we make stories based on some of the testimony. So that's not a conspiracy, dude. That's the way we disseminate information and decide what's important for you to watch, including criticism of the Trudeau government and including the chaos that was happening behind police lines as they struggled to actually do anything. Pat King wasn't even part of the convoy until it got popular. If you watch the live streaming on Facebook during the convoy, he was hardly there to be seen. He's using his platform for his own purposes. If only the media investigated during the convoy. Part of the testimony earlier in the week was that they wanted him in there because he had a large following. 
and actually they used him, as you say, it's actually kind of the other way around. He's using his platform for his own purposes. Uh, They wanted him in because he had several hundred thousand viewers on Facebook. The inquiry has no teeth. Politicians won't answer questions. It is bull from Pickering. Uh, I don't agree with that. No, it's not. You ever seen Justin Trudeau testify in front of a judge under cross-examination from a number of lawyers? It's not a committee. Different format. He has to answer the questions. Same with all the cabinet ministers. I'm going to go wild. I'm going to offer a wild bet here. Justin Trudeau's testimony is going to make a lot of news. A lot of news. You're going to learn things from Justin Trudeau about the convoy and what his, what his motivations were that you don't know today. And it's because of the public inquiry. They have to call the public inquiry when they invoke the act, by the way. That's part of the law. That's part of the law. So I, I just I just don't accept that, you know, it's easy to sit there and say, ah, um, nothing means anything. You know. It's it's all it's all worthless. Like that's, that's easy to say, honestly, if you, if you, if you're not angry and you have some time, watch it on one of the streams or YouTube or wherever it's all, it's all over the place. Just, just watch it or watch the summary of it or go to someone you trust if it's not me and have a look at it. Um, this, this is interesting, you know, because of, because of where, what I, I covered the convoy myself. This is Don from downtown Ottawa. Hi, Graham. Listen, I have a real problem with the way you've increasingly been defending the convoy people. Either come out and say you're on their side or not. Have a set, would you? Do I think various levels of government ever overreached and introduced foolish, pointless mandates on the people? Yes. Do I? Yes. Do I think it was a terrible mistake that people lost their jobs because they didn't get a vaccination? Yes. But if your protest had an opening message of the elected government needs to step down so we put up our trucks uh, so we can run the country. The answer is no. We won't talk to you. You are fringe. Go the blank home. Okay, just for the record, that I think that's one of the first texts I've had ever suggest I'm pro-con. Stay with us. Talk today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. Uh, we're going to shift gears a bit. We want to talk about healthcare um, and the pressure our systems are under, all systems, it seems, whether it's family doctor, uh, children's hospitals, elder care, emergency rooms. Um, in the last several months, I think we have seen it basically just a lot of the assumptions we made about the system we have, uh, I think have kind of fallen away. Like you just don't know. It's a real roll of the dice going in there now. Children's hospitals in the province across Ontario, and it's true across the country, but they're under such pressure now, they're making adjustments like 14 plus 
they're moving younger kids into the adult system. They're asking people to do that. If you're if you got a 14, 15 year old normally goes to a children's hospital with something, don't do that now uh, because of the pressure. Here in I'm in Ottawa, they are reshifting staff around at the Children's Hospital, CHEO, Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. Um, they are delaying surgeries, non-elect, non-urgent surgeries, they call them, to staff up acute care, critical care, and emergency rooms. Um, Tammy Giovanni is uh, CHEO's Vice President of Clinical Services. The hospital is well beyond its capacity, wait times historically high. And looking at how we triage those uh, those appointments so that the urgent patients um, still go ahead, um, but that we're able to free up staff and space to be uh, dealing with uh, with the surge that we're seeing. And similarly, on uh, the periop side, is looking at at the the surgeries and making sure that the most urgent go ahead. But really recognizing that um, anytime we're doing triaging, even though we say that we're, we're doing this all the time, this is a is a whole other other level um, that 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 is important and is challenging for us and most of all for patients and families. So this is not normal. Uh, Dr. Mona Jabour is the interim chief of the Department of Pediatrics at CHEO. Um, and the Dr. Jabour is talking about how every hospital is facing this in one way or another. You know, every hospital is experiencing this a little bit differently, but I would say we're all going through the same situation. What's unique in our community, in our region here, um, is that there is very little pediatric expertise beyond our, our beyond the city of Ottawa, um, and there are a lot of um, there are a lot of children that are um, you know dealing with these various um, viral illnesses that you're you know that's re- COVID, RSV, and influenza, and they're all happening at the time. They're all happening at the same time and the hospitals are absolutely stretched. So give me a text, 71010. What are you doing, whether it's children or your own healthcare? How have you adjusted? The other concern here, have you adjusted? Are you avoiding going because of the kind of shape the system is in? Um, the And that has consequences. Because people who delay, we found that in the pandemic, people who delay or don't go for a variety of reasons, it's bad for the healthcare system as a whole because problems um, problems are uh, exacerbated the longer you wait. And we've seen that, that the delayed treatment, but you know, at the same time, when you've got walk-in clinics that are refusing walk-ins, and you've got people of all ages who don't have family doctors. Um, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? You know, I think about families with young kids who don't have a family doctor. I mean, we've done stories locally here where there's people who, who have an 18 month old child who's never seen a family doctor and they're still, they still can't even get on a waiting list. So it's obvious why there's pressure on the emerge, you know? Um, and, and I think that, you know, I think that we're all kind of reevaluating, um, what we have at our disposal. And this is a national problem. We were talking to Dr. Suman Chakrabarty earlier, 
And he basically said, look, this is going to be a structural months long problem to get through this flu season, but it's exposing where our system is vulnerable, you know, um, like 15 hour waits for ER sometimes for children. Like that's, that would have been a lead story for days on end before the pandemic. That would have been what's going on. Now it's just like a dime a dozen. We can't even keep up with the stories. Spoke to a woman earlier. Her, her parents are in the end stages of life. They're in their nineties and, and they can't get proper care. In, in some cases they're, they're, they're looking for maid and they can't even get that. It's just, um, I got U.S. insurance because the system stinks. He used another word or she used another word. That's a text from Toronto. Wait until hospital staff are calling in sick to look after their school-aged kids. Think it's challenging now. That's obviously in reference to the, um, to the pending strike. I, I don't know if that's going to happen, but, you know, I mean, obviously that's a factor as well. Um... No adjustment needed. We lived as normal as possible for the past two years. Results are proving out. So th that's referencing the, the protective measures that we imposed uh, that, that a lot of people went by. Um, and the fact that that's sort of catching up with a lot of RSV, this person says they didn't do that. Um, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, maybe you're right. I don't know. But uh, um, a lot of people didn't have that option. Um, and it's, it, they didn't want to take the risk without vaccination and without, um, a proper understanding of COVID. I mean, it's easy to look back on COVID now on the pandemic and say, we shouldn't have done X, Y, and Z. You got to remember, um, there were no, there were no vaccines and it was, you know, like remember Milan and New York city in the early days of the first wave, like whole families were wiped out, you know? So, uh, the bodies were being stacked in emergency rooms. So now it's easy to say, oh, you know, like we didn't have any vaccines. We had no protection whatsoever. I don't think we had a really, really had a choice on that front. I understand we have a caller on the line on, on healthcare, I believe. System's been broken for years. I, I mean, sorry, who's this? We, we, tr we oh, trimmed the top of you. Sorry, it's Ron from Guelph. Uh, the system's been broken for years. I mean, when my doctor died 10 years ago, it took me years to find a new family doctor. ERs have always been overbooked and overflowed with hallway medicine for the last 10, 15 years. It's not a new story. The, the system's broken. The funding model is awful. Yeah. I would say, though, um, it has been amplified and exacerbated and made worse in the last few months, much worse than we've seen in the time period before. Would you agree with that or no? No, like like my wife's daughter has been waiting to see a neurologist. She's had a series of six concussions eight years ago and hasn't seen a neurologist since. It, it's, it's insane. She can't even get the help she needs. Yeah. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. It's everywhere, whether it's a neurologist or other... My 93-year-old mom, a texter says, chose to die in August partly because she could not get a doctor. Like, recently my wife and I, who's 30 weeks pregnant, tried to get into a walk-in clinic. 
went to three walk-in clinics, all said they weren't taking any patients. 30 weeks pregnant. There has to be a better, there has to be a better way here, you know? Hire back the nurses that were fired for their medical choices. Even Pfizer admits vaccines don't stop. Okay. Like, I don't think the significant number of nurses lost their jobs over the vaccination issue. I, I, I honestly don't think that that would make much of a difference. I'll look into it. Um, I, I, I just, I just don't, I, I don't think there's a significant number that I've seen. I believe here, for instance, the Ottawa hospital, we checked into the numbers a few months ago. I believe it was a handful, but we'll check. When we come back, Paul Champ will join us on the Emergencies Act inquiry. He's a lawyer withstanding at the inquiry. Welcome back to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. We've been watching the um, inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act, and uh, there is um, virtually every hour there appears to be new information coming out. Yesterday, quite a day with uh, convoy members like Chris Barber and Pat King testifying. Uh, One of the lawyers questioning uh, these people as the lawyer representing the people of Ottawa downtown also uh, has launched a class action lawsuit against the Freedom Convoy, Paul Champ. He joins us on the line. Mr. Champ, thanks for being here. I know you're busy. Thank you, Graham. Nice to speak with you. Yeah. Today, the money, um, the audit of the money uh, was released publicly. What story does that tell from your perspective? Well, it's it's quite a big, broad story. I mean, the the um, organizers used some crowdfunding platforms uh, initially, GoFundMe, and then Give Send Go, and they they raised a tremendous amount of money uh, through those uh, platforms. Uh, much of it was outside of Canada. A uh, significant amount of money, several millions of dollars, came from people in the United States and in other countries. Um, and we also learned that they you know they raised a number of money just like directly people sending them uh, e transfers and so forth. So my reading of it too, that it appears in the latter stages with Ghost, um, with GoFundMe shut down and refunded, Give Send Go was was more American, but still a fifty fifty split. Why is it important? Some of our listeners are saying, "Who cares where the money came from?" From your perspective, why is that important? Well, for the people in Ottawa per se, it's it's not that significant. I think the commission is looking into it because they're wondering. Um, you know, whether there was uh, foreign influence uh, towards the uh, Freedom Convoy. Uh, like, as you may recall, back uh, at that time, Graham, uh, Fox News was very interested in this protest very early. We had, you know, some of the extreme right wing uh, Republican Congress people like Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene and so forth, commenting about it, saying that, you know, it was worse that uh, that the federal government in Canada was invoking the Emergencies Act and that Russia was invading Ukraine. Uh, you know, that was some of the rhetoric that we were getting out of the U.S. at the time. So I think the commission is looking at it, uh, you know, from a bit of a broader national security perspective. What about the, so far, the commission itself? Uh, from the resident's perspective, I know you were a bit frustrated yesterday because of the mm-hmm. time given to the protesters and the time given to residents. Uh, you don't feel that was fair. Uh, but so far, I mean... It seems to me we're getting a clearer picture, particularly on the policing side of 
why the response was so uh, uh, minimal in the early Poor. days. Poor, <laughs> sure. Uh, well, I mean, yes, for sure, Graham. I think, uh, you know, the first couple of weeks of evidence was, uh, you know, like incredibly revealing. I'm sure that, you know, people in policing and in, in political science will be studying that evidence for a long time. We, you know, we lifted the curtain and, and were able to see, you know, the dysfunction that was going on uh, within the Ottawa Police Service uh, and the, the rivalries and the fighting between different uh, police services with the OPP and the RCMP. And um, so I, I think, you know, the, the people in Ottawa are getting a, a better picture about why, uh, you know, they were abandoned and left helpless uh, for so long during those three lawless weeks. I wanted to ask you about Pat King. At one point, he suggested that your lawsuit, I believe, has frozen an account that he has. What, what's he talking about there? Um, well, in um, in mid-February, while the prote- protests were still ongoing, we brought a motion called a Mariva injunction where we wanted to freeze the bank accounts of all the people who we thought were providing the main funds to the trucks to keep getting fuel, keep getting uh, food and so forth to remain on the streets of Ottawa. And Mr. King was one of them. So we did. We got a court order freezing his bank accounts and many other bank accounts of the key organizers um, because he was receiving e-transfers. People were giving him money from across Canada through e-transfers. We seized his money, his account. The others, we worked out an agreement. They could show where the money came from. And those money, those monies that were donations, they paid into an escrow fund, which we have control over to hopefully one day, you know, compensate the people of downtown Ottawa. Mr. King is not engaged with us. So that entire account, which holds a little over $100,000, has remained frozen since that time. Wow. How much money do you have in escrow? Can you say? Yeah, it's about five and a half million dollars. Five and a half million. So, so we heard today that that a lot of the money was refunded through yes. um, GoFundMe. So, yep. so of the five million, is that the early that is that after GoFundMe refunded? It it's a little bit of all. So there was about ten million that was raised through GoFundMe, but only one million was given to the uh, convoy organizers, Miss Leach. Mm-hmm. But it uh, it was in her TD bank that one million and TD actually froze it before we did because they were concerned about what it was being used for. So we we got that money paid into the escrow, uh, and then there's another three three point five million that was the give send go money uh, from the Freedom Convoy uh, fundraiser, and then there was another fundraiser called Adopt a Trucker uh, where we got about four hundred thousand out of that, and then there was also uh, Bitcoin. We seized uh, nearly four hundred thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin as well. So all of that eventually, if you win will be dispersed to whom it's kind of hard to measure who who... yeah we well uh, people who are residents people who reside uh within the occupation zone as we call it uh we've plotted out where the trucks were primarily um and through other evidence of people with videos and so forth of what were the most affected areas and so people who uh, resided in, in Ottawa uh, in, in that zone will be compensated at the end, as well as also uh, people who were workers uh, in that zone, who were employees who uh, business where businesses shut down because they couldn't operate will also be compensated. Hmm. Uh, how far away are you from that being in front of a judge or in court? Well, we were in court all the time. I was in court this morning on it because today we expanded the lawsuit uh, to sue Gibson Go directly. Because um, Gibson Go was not simply being a crowd sourcing uh, fundraising platform, they were actually 
uh, assisting uh, the convoy organizers directly with some of the documents that we've now been able to obtain. We see that they were, uh, when they knew that the convoy organizers were having trouble opening bank accounts and so forth, because all banks actually started taking action against them first because of the illegal activities, uh, Give, Go, Go went out of its way to try to uh, create separate accounts to get the money in the hands of those protesters. So we're arguing that they're liable for it as well. So we, we've got that motion ongoing. Um, they're bringing another motion against us in a couple of weeks because they're trying to get access to the escrow funds to pay for their legal costs. So it's uh, it's a lot of legal fighting, Graham, but I'm I'm very optimistic we're ultimately going to be successful for the people of Ottawa. Mm. You can't use anything that comes up here in your lawsuit, right? Because it's a public inquiry? Uh, no, that's not entirely accurate. Um, documents that are introduced as evidence uh, in the inquiry. So some of those primary documents we are able to use. And with respect to the testimony that these individuals give, uh, they can invoke a privilege under the Canada Evidence Act uh, that says, you know, I'm compelled to give this testimony and it can't be used against me in a civil proceeding. A number of the uh, protesters who are testifying have invoked that privilege, but a few, uh, a few haven't. So mm. we'll, we'll see how that goes for them down the road. Before I let you go and we go to break, uh, the freezing of accounts overall has been a very hot topic, uh, obviously, mm -hmm. because it impacted the people protesting, it impacted people back home, their families, that sort of thing. So that, that King account is still frozen because he wouldn't engage in the escrow. That's um, right. it, to your knowledge, are most accounts, were most accounts released as, uh, after the Emergencies Act was declared over or? They were. They, they were. were. And I so, think there's only, and there's only a very small number of accounts that were frozen. I mean, I think it's been overblown quite a bit. Uh, I think we'll hear evidence later on about the Emergencies Act, about exactly how much or how many accounts they froze. Uh, with our case, I think it was like maybe six individuals whose accounts we froze. Um, and with the Emergencies Act, I think it was, uh, you know, a handful more. So I think that whole issue has been a bit overblown, but we'll hear more evidence as the matter proceeds. All right, Paul Champ, appreciate your time. I know you're busy. Thanks for this. Thanks, Ram. All right, that's Paul Champ. He's a lawyer representing the people of downtown Ottawa. $5 million in escrow, $5 million they are fighting over. Um. I, I remind you, uh, the Rideau Mall alone was closed for several weeks. People couldn't work. I've met people who had to quit jobs because of the convoy presence and go find another job. Sometimes they couldn't. So uh, Paul Champ has something to say about that, and he's not going away. I'm Graham Richardson. This is News Talk Today. is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. We are watching the Ontario labor situation very closely, not only because it impacts thousands, hundreds of thousands of families, really, uh, starting tomorrow. If they're going to ignore um, back-to-work legislation, they're probably not going to do it just for one day. OPSU, another union, is walking out in solidarity tomorrow. The Premier has just been seen walking from one room to the other with a not a great look on his face like he says he's working on it. So 
I don't know what he's working on. Uh, it, it doesn't appear the two sides, the two sides are talking. We have just heard from Stephen Lecce, the education minister, about some of the issues from the government side. The union is saying, basically, you will not negotiate. Um, the union floated a reduced ask, a lower ask. They had been asking for three twenty-five an hour, $3.25 an hour raise for their workers, some of the lowest paid in the education system. The government translated that. That's an 11% increase, they said, over uh, each year, over the life of the contract. Government said they can't do that. Um, the union came back last night, yesterday at some point. That number had gone down to 6%. Government says, we're not even going to look at it if you're still going to threaten to strike. That's where we are and that's where we've been. It doesn't look like we're anywhere close to any kind of a deal. So this is kind of what we're watching. Sorry, who is this? Ah, we do have the union. Sorry. This is uh, Fred Hahn with the Education Workers in Ontario, CUPE. Here is the head of the union. Uh, our members have been here uh, and ready to bargain. They've been bargaining with the government for months. Uh, they did present a counteroffer. The, the sad reality is that the government has said it won't even consider it. The minister talks about options. There are real options here. They can actually come to the table and actually bargain with us. But you see, they think they don't have to because they have a leg piece of legislation that is draconian. Text us at 71010. Where do you stand on this? We're getting a lot of people saying they're with the union, but we're getting a lot who are fatigued with the idea of strikes and why teachers unions and education unions uh, seem to always be the ones who, I don't know, fight the hardest, threaten the strike. They, they have a lot of power. They have a lot of power um, because, you know, you've got 18 years of your kid's life, generally speaking, 17 years, you know, whether it's, okay, started at four years old in junior kindergarten, all the way up to the end of high school, you are, your life, major parts of your life, of course, are predicated on the notion that in the school months, you're going to have, uh, you're going to have a place where kids can learn. This is a deep seated major dispute. Um, <laughs> the use of notwithstanding um, has caught a lot of people by surprise. Um, but I find it just really interesting that the same noise, like the premier, the, the prime minister called the premier last night about this and said it was inappropriate to use notwithstanding. And, you know, I said this before on the show that he didn't, he wasn't nearly and isn't nearly as engaged in Quebec's use of this. So I, 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 of the notwithstanding clause. So I think that what he's saying is, is that in certain circumstances, even though he's opposed to the use of the notwithstanding clause, he's more opposed to Ontario's. I also think it's more politically safe for him to raise these questions than it is in Quebec because it's viewed differently in Quebec and he's from Quebec. But people in Ontario and other people who are watching this have noticed this. Like it is a contradiction, you know? The union won't drop their strike mandate, so whatever. Where is Ronald Reagan when you need him? 
air traffic controllers. You have 24 hours to get back to work or you're fired. Yeah. You know, the, the American, uh, that was a famous move by Reagan that he, you know, uh, seen as a positive in conservative circles, of course. Of course. Um, there is labor law in Canada, though. You know, we have stronger labor laws. You can't just fire them all. Um, they need to stop funding the boards. The money should go where the parents want it to go. Well, I'm not sure if it's, I'm not sure if it's a board issue here. We've got a dispute between, we've got a dispute between province and unions because the province is the employer. Here is Stephen Lecce, the education minister, just a few moments ago, pushing out a message on social media as the clock ticks towards a strike. They demanded a nearly 50% increase in compensation or threatened a strike if they didn't get it. Um, and I think the government has demonstrated that we will do whatever it takes uh, to keep these kids in class in a normal, stable environment without any disruption that I believe they deserve after two extraordinary years of a pandemic and recent strikes that preceded the pandemic. And so we're here because QP, at the end of the day, has completely brought forth unreasonable demands. They refuse to withdraw their strike, and we have literally no choice. Okay, that's the government perspective. They union says they do have a choice; they can negotiate. Government says, absolutely uh, ridiculous ask. The other thing at play here, what the government won't say, um, because they. Um, but but they've got their eye on other agreements too, right? This is the first one out of the gate. And if they give if they give six or seven or eight or five percent here, they're they're bound by that for other agreements, not legally. But the other unions will look at that and say that union did not settle for two and a half or one point two five or whatever it was. So we're not going to either. They fought, threatened to strike. And they got a higher number and a better deal. I mean, obviously, they're going to have to come together at some point and get a deal. Um, or uh, we're going to have an imposed deal uh, through the legislation with the notwithstanding clause and a lot of wildcat action that is going to be incredibly disruptive. The government is also talking about, I mean... If you go out on an illegal strike or a strike that's against the law, there are obviously big fines. The union could face $500,000 fines. I think the number for individuals is thousands. It's 4,000. Are they going to be going after every single one? No. Are they going to go after some? They probably will. I don't know. I mean, if they're not going to go after zero, are they? After basically bringing in back to like back to work legislation and they defy the back to work legislation and they don't find anyone. I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, this is Matt. Uh, people have an opinion against the strike. Um, here we are. Sorry. People who have an opinion against the strike clearly are sitting cozy with a salary. Well, I'm not sure about that, but Cut anyone's salary to $39,000 a year in today's economy and see what they do. These people work hard and they deserve a raise. That's Matt. Matt arguing the fact that there are low-paid workers and in today's environment, extraordinarily difficult um, to, to live on that kind of a wage. And um, it's, uh, it's fair. Uh, that, that, you know, that's fair. Uh, the difference here is the workers, they haven't had a big increase. They've had 1% every year in every contract since 2003. 
What about the children of these families? They're in poverty. It's not fair. The Ford government has a big cushion from the federal government, $55 billion. So I'm with the workers. That's, uh, that's uh, Diane. Um, there's a lot going on here, right? Government's in surplus. Uh, unions arguing they can afford this. And the other thing is uh, the NDP pointing out in the House that the, uh, the government made lots of uh, backbencher members, parliamentary secretaries, and gave them this $16,000 raise um, after the last election. So they think they're being picked on. So I don't know. Do you see a common ground here? If judging by the text board, there's uh, lots of space in between the groups. And if I was a parent of a kid who was in the public school or the Catholic school system, I'd be very, very worried today about how long this is going to go on and, and what it's going to mean. So we will continue to watch it. When we come back, Dan Riskin watching science for us. I'm Graham Richardson. This is News Talk Today. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is, it's a dream, man. The headline is Risking It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. All right, time to talk to Dan Riskin. How are you, Dan? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. Good to see you, or good to talk to you anyway. Glad you could come Good to on. hear you. Uh, tell me about the lunar eclipse and the time zones, and I love it, uh, the reference to blood moon, because that immediately uh, speaks to me of the fall sky and that special looking moon that we sometimes get. Yeah, I like that they call it a blood moon, too. I mean, it's technically it's a blood beaver moon, right. which is even better. I mean, no beavers were injured in the making of this eclipse, so don't worry about that. <laughs> but the November full moon is called the beaver moon because that is a time when historically in North America, people have harvested a lot of beavers to make pelts or to get their pelts to make fur coats for the winter. And so November full moon is the beaver moon and the blood moon is a full lunar eclipse because when the shadow of the earth covers the moon, because the sun's behind you and the moon's right. in front of you, and the light can't go through you. So uh, there's a shadow that projects onto the moon. It doesn't quite take away all of the light. What ends up happening is that the moon is still a little bit lit. And if you can imagine, it's like there's a sunset or a sunrise or whatever you want to call it all the way around the earth in this red color that's going around the edges of the earth. And that's what lights up the moon. And that's why it has this blood red color. So it's the same reason that the sunrise and the sunset are red. That's why the blood moon is red. And so this is going to happen uh, on Tuesday, November 8th, very early in the morning. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, there's, there's a whole thing where it, like it starts to dim a little bit because there's something called the penumbral eclipse and all this stuff. But the real like bite out of the moon starts mm. at 5.16 a.m. on Tuesday. That's so Eastern you, time. That's, that's Ottawa time. Yeah. And uh, it will finish. The whole eclipse will be done at 6.41 a.m. And that is not very long before the moon sets. And so this is all going to happen while the moon is just about to set, as seen from Ottawa. People in Vancouver don't have this problem. They can look up and watch the eclipse. But for Ottawa specifically, the moon is, you're almost going to miss it, but you will catch it. So as, as long as you're, you're willing to get up kind of early between 5.16 and 6.41 uh, and you look to the, to the west, 
you'll be able to see that uh, that eclipse. And the maximum eclipse will be right at 6 a.m. So that's uh, that's easy to set your alarm and go outside and look at the blood moon. Reasonable uh, time. Now, is this one of these ones? Uh, does it matter in the city? Is it better outside the city as always? Uh, you know what? It's gonna be it's gonna be fine anywhere. I okay. mean, if you can get out of the yeah. city, you're gonna have a much more spectacular experience. One of the coolest things about a lunar eclipse is the way the stars come out. So, um, I my coolest eclipse experience. I was on a a bat ex- expedition in Belize, and wow. I didn't know there was gonna be a lunar eclipse, and it surprised mm-hmm. me. And so, well, I remember we had finished catching bats for the night, and we were sitting out in the dark, uh, overlooking the water, middle of the night, and uh, all of a sudden the moon starts looking weird. And as the eclipse happened, I mean, we clued in, uh, but we didn't have cell phones back then or anything like that to sort of look up what was going on. So we just sort of had to take it in. Um, But as the eclipse went forward, more and more stars came out. And so that's one of the advantages to being out in the country if you can pull it off. But even if you're in the city, you'll be able to see the blood red moon for sure. Fantastic. I uh, I want to move on. I love this this study and what it says about us as as humans. Um, a, A wide ranging, large study basically saying... Um, stay in touch with friends and colleagues, not just really close ones. What, is, what does this tell us? Yeah, this is uh, the, the, it's a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So it's a prestigious mm. journal, and it's a great journal because it covers a lot of different things, and sometimes there's some real surprises in there. And, and that's where I came across this one. And uh, based on a couple of different uh, polls that they asked people some questions, about 50,000 people in total, um, in the U.S. and in France and internationally, they they were asking people about who they'd spent time with in the last day or the last week, and then they were asking people how happy they were, and they found that having re- spent time not just with people that you're really close to, but with a broad range of relations. So. Hmm. They talk about the diversity of relations, and they're not talking about how diverse the people are in terms of where the people come from, but diversity in terms of where they fit into your life. Coworkers, family, close friends, uh, somebody from high school, whatever it is, the more diverse that assemblage is of people that you're spending time with, the happier you're going to be overall. And that's kind of a surprising result because you would think, or I would think anyway, Mm. that you should just stick with your closest friends and that's going to bring you the most happiness. But it turns out that the diversity of interactions that you get from being with people that you know in different ways uh, feeds your soul in a way that just always looking out, seeking out the same kinds of uh, interactions does not do. Did they talk about... Um, like length of time or how people measured their happiness or did they just ask people, are you happy? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to pull up the exact wording, but it's something like overall uh, with everything weighed out, how happy would you say you are on a scale of one to 10 today? If you imagine happiness as a ladder. Sure. So it was a very general question that they start with. And then from there, then they start saying, okay, in the last week, uh, you know, how many different people have you spent time with and, and how do you know them? And so people had to sort of categorize the different relationships that they'd, people that they'd spent time with. And this robust correlation came about. And so they found it with US people. They also found it with a bunch of people in France. And uh, they did another survey across a whole bunch of countries. And I think there were eight countries in their survey. And, and it, it was robust across that international s- survey as well. And so it's surprising. I mean, there's a, there's a neat study that was done before this, where they showed that the happiness a person has from interacting with someone is high, regardless of how well they know them. And so if I take you into a laboratory setting and I get you to spend time with one of your close friends and then mm-hmm. I rate your happiness after afterwards and then I do the same thing but instead I give you somebody that you've never met before 
you're going to come out of that room with pretty similar happiness scores. We, mm. we actually, people tend to enjoy spending time with other people, even if they don't know them beforehand. And we underestimate this all the time. We always think that oh, I don't want to meet a stranger. Oh, new people. I, I got no time to meet new people, but I've got enough you know, friends. You're fortunate. You're an interviewer. So you're always meeting. New people. <laughs> I am meeting talking. them. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but th that notion that I've got enough friends, I'm old enough. I don't need anybody new. That not necessarily uh, that might, people might want to relook at that. Center. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, there's a funny paper that, that they cite where it basically it shows that somebody is just as happy walking out of the lab if they've spent time with a total stranger or their romantic partner. And I thought that was a pretty funny, surprising <laughs> result. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Dan Riskin, always appreciate you talking to us. It's good to be acquainted with you, be friends with you on the radio. Thanks so much. For yeah, this. it's good to have you in my diverse array of <laughs> relations as well. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. That's Dan Riskin. Uh, this just moving on the wire, CP Wire, uh, just moving this on the education situation in Ontario, uh, the Ministry of Education telling school boards ahead of education workers strike on Friday to make every effort to keep schools open, otherwise pivot to remote learning. Government's expected to pass the bill today, uh, imposing the contract, steep fines if they don't comply and they walk off the job. The union uh, is saying it will start a strike Friday until further notice, even if the legislation passes and makes a walkout illegal. So there we are. We are nowhere near a deal in Ontario. And that's just really unfortunate. So here we go. Here we go. And what will this mean for other teachers unions, other provinces? Um, people will be seeing this and um, the unions and their members are looking for a significant bump up. Um, everybody has been asked to do more with less. Everybody has been stressed during the pandemic. Teachers and education workers in particular are no different. And this is something that is going to ripple through lots of industries. So as of now, it appears like there are no talks and there are no, um, there, there is no way to break this. But that being said, um, we still got, a, you know, quite a few hours until midnight uh, when this uh, bill passes and when this strike would take effect. I'm Graham Richardson. Thanks for being here. This has been News Talk Today.